Welcome to the Audiobook Lovin' Series, a month-long event celebrating the authors and narrators that bring romance stories to life. Listen along as Viviana, Enchantress of Books, interviews your favorite writers and voices, share special guest posts, and stay tuned for some special information at the conclusion of the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with authors and narrators voicing the heroes and heroines of Man of War. Author TJ London and her narrators, Nicholas Bolton, Catherine Vinclair, and Jason Clark. Welcome back, Jason and TJ, and warm welcome to Nicholas and Catherine to the Audiobook Loving Series. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, it's going to be a fun chat with uh, multiple voices, but we also know how romance loves are multiple, so we're good. <laughs> um, why don't we start by having uh, you guys tell us how you guys got into narrating, how long you've been narrating, a little bit about yourselves and who you're voicing in Man of War. You want to start, Nicholas? You bet. Hi, I'm Nicholas Bolton. I'm uh, voicing Merrick, also known as Dale McKesson, uh, <laughs> to some people. And I hope I'm not giving any spoilers there. I think that's been no spoilers. Way. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've been narrating audiobook for, I think, something like 15 years now. Uh, but my voice work goes way, way back. I started in the uh, early 1990s, back in the in the last century. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so long BBC ago. Radio, yeah, working with the BBC Radio Drama Company. So uh, it was quite a, a kind of a comfortable leap from doing radio drama uh, and, and also doing short stories for the BBC to narrating unabridged books uh, of, of various different genres. And that's how long I've been going. <laughs> it feels a lot longer. <laughs> And Catherine? Well, gosh, my experience dwarf in comparison to Nicholas's. Uh, I'm Catherine Vinclair. I've been narrating audiobook for about three years now, and my voiceover work has been for a similar amount of time. Um, it's a mix of commercials, video games, audiobooks, audio dramas. Um, I'm voicing Caroline slash India. Hope that's not too much of a spoiler to you. No, no, not at all. <laughs> we're going to spoil a few things. There's a preface before this that, you know, just FYI, there may be a few spoils. So you're good. Yeah. Jason, your turn. Yeah, I'm Jason Clark. I uh, play uh, Clayton Carlisle, George Gates, George Allen, and a little bit, sometimes Jamie, the little boy, and a uh, few other characters, but mostly Clayton and I got started in narration after being an actor in New York for about four years some stage stuff in the city and around the country and then I did some commercial VO work and I always really loved doing voiceover I did my first audiobook it was like a little over seven years ago actually back in 2015 but it wasn't until about 2018 that I started like actually doing it full-time it before then it had been like every couple of months I'd do a book or a commercial but um now it's become my full-time thing and I, I love it. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be doing this and it's, uh, I'm happy to be here and be a part of this project. So I'm TJ London, obviously. I am not an author by trade. It's my second hustle, basically, like I have a real one. But I got into writing as part of therapy. So I had a really, as I've talked about and been very transparent about, I had a really catastrophic event. Two of them happened in my life at the same time and went into counseling and had some very serious, serious personal uh, issues. And initially my counselor wanted me to start journaling what was going on in my life to try to help me cope. Unfortunately, that did not go really well. It was actually kind of exacerbating some of the problems that I was having. So 
she's like, do you have any creative outlets? Like, do you paint? Do you, you know, do you do something to help you deal with your anxiety? And I'm like, all I do is research. That's part of what I do in my profession. I said, and I know I used to have some book ideas. I used to write and stuff. She's like, okay, we're going to go down that road. We're going to try this. So I actually started writing and I would write pages and I would bring them into my counselor and read them to her. And she would dig through what I was talking about and say, okay, why is this happening? Or why is this happening? And that was actually the start of my writing career. Um, and the Tory, which is actually the first book in the saga, was actually literally the production of my counseling. And so Man of War comes the same way. It's also part of counseling. The time I wrote Man of War, my father had passed away. And that was part of what was going on in my life at the time. And he passed away kind of tragically. I mean, every death is tragic, but it was, it was pretty unique. And usually where families start to come together, uh, when you lose such an important person in your family, my family really kind of fell apart. And there was a lot of sibling rivalry that was really exposed. There was a lot of dysfunction in levels of my family. And so I wrote Man of War in this counseling process. I would read pages of it to my counselor and we would talk about where these characters come from. So Secret to All of You, all of them are manifestations, a little bit of what I was going through, kind of steeped in the fiction of the story. I know Catherine and I have talked about that. There is a reason Dane is the third child. I am a third child. There is a reason Dean is a third child. My father is a third child. You know, there is a reason that the oldest sibling is the one in debate with the character. I had an oldest sibling. My father had an oldest sibling. So that's a little bit about how I got started. And then I never intended to actually publish. That was never the plan. It was always just about, you know, creating the books. And what ended up happening was my counselor's like, okay, now you need to go do something. Let someone read this. I'm like, you know, no one's supposed to read this. But eventually I did let someone read it and they liked it, I mean, which was disturbing to me. But I was like, okay, somebody likes it. So um, it eventually ended up the Tory got put out to the world and then I just kept progressing through it. And literally every book I write now, I still write part of counseling. So it's for me, and because it's mental health month, I do want to draw attention to that. Um, that writing is a really good option for people who are struggling through mental health issues. It's kind of been my, my way of dealing with my ongoing mental health struggles. So uh, I just want to put that plug out there and give you guys some backdrop for understanding Man of War a little bit. So I'll let you go back. I'll go back to you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. We're really glad that you decided to listen to the therapist as far as getting these published because they are great stories. And I think that other people will also kind of see some things that might be going along in their life and how, you know, that it might help them. So that's good. As I mentioned before, TJ and Jason have been a guest in the past. So we will be including those links in the main post. So you guys can check those out because there's a lot of other fun stuff going on in those conversations from previous years. Now, something that TJ does that I find extremely interesting, and I really hope that other authors will start doing this more with their narrators, is provide a lot of details on the characters, giving them guidance on the tones and the voices and the cadences of the characters. As the narrators, how did you land on the final voices and tones for these individual characters? Nicholas? Uh, I mean, as you say, uh, the, the notes that PJ gives are absolutely indispensable. They're so useful for any actor to, to get in touch with the characters that they're, that they're, that they're gonna portray. Uh, of course, you know, when you're, when you're uh, voicing uh, one of the main characters in the book, you, you know, I do a lot of uh, other books, where, for example, I do all the character voices, for, for example, in uh, uh, Dickens' books and Wilkie Collins' books. Uh, and that, that re requires a great deal of kind of setting where each character sits. But of course, when you're, when you're voicing predominantly one hero, uh, it's a lot easier. The job's a lot easier. You just, uh, you find that position in yourself, keep it quite close to yourself, your own center and apply it to the character. And, you know, with any luck, they meet like 
pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. So no control freak on me. You didn't mind. <laughs> I always worry <laughs> when I all. send notes to somebody. I'm always like, oh, they're going to think TJ's a big control freak. But it's more like, it's kind of my thoughts of like, hey, this is my thoughts. You know, just go with them and create, you know, and take what you will with it from them. Which, which is huge, hugely useful, as I say, for any actor. Because it, it just gives you a direction in which you can go. And then, of course, within the bounds of that, boundaries of that direction, you can make your own choices and, and bring what you bring, your, your, your own unique uh, qualities to the, to the work. Catherine? Well, I mean, Caroline, similar to what Nicholas has just said, really, it, you, you find a voice that sits quite close to your own. There's not a huge difference between how I sound and how Caroline sounds. But the, the thing is, is she finds a new strength and a new sense of, persona within herself during this whole man of war experience that she goes through so for for Caroline it was very much about finding the moments where she was a little more petulant where she would put on the formality or when she was sinking back into former habits and her voice would be a little more formal versus the moments where she just let loose and she'd find a freedom within herself and she she'd lose the RP for a minute, um, not to the point where she sounds like a completely different person, but just as a subtle change in accent, um, just in a few moments, depending on who she's speaking to and how she's feeling in that moment. Certainly sort of towards the end of the of the book, she, she starts to find a confidence within herself that I wanted to show in the book. So it was more to do with subtle changes in accent where the scene dictated it, really, while still staying, staying true to who, who she is at the end of the day. I think it's interesting because I've had a chance to actually listen to the start of it, like the first, eh, maybe more, maybe about a third of the book. And you say it's subtle change, but it's so impactful. It's so impactful when you listen to it, even though it's just the fragility in one scene and the strength in another. It's just, it, it creates such a dichotomy of the character, which is what I was trying to create on the page that you did such a brilliant job with it. So I, I think you're being modest. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, TJ. I mean, she, she is a character of great polarizing contrasts. And my concern was that she'd end up sounding like a different person completely in different scenes. And whilst I want to show a complete change in emotion, I also want people to, to be certain that it's her in every moment. It's just that she has such contrast. So that was a really fun thing to play with. And uh, yeah, TJ, all of your notes and our discussions before I started recording were all just so, so beneficial in making sure we could keep that authenticity running through her. Thank you. Jason? Yeah, I, so with Clayton, I feel like he is the hero of his own story, kind of. He shows up and he's got his own agendas he's got his own motives and at the same time he's he's sort of like i can do this for you you can do this for me let's work together so my goal with him was to sort of infiltrate the story and be this confident person not trying to impress other people but being a, a good cooperator i suppose and i yeah he's he's got a lot of fun moments he's he has a bit of like a roguish tilt to him uh, which mm -hmm. is a blast. Like, I, I, I don't know. There was sort of like a James Bond approach a little bit, like secret agent kind of thing. But then at the same time, he's uh, he's got a bit of a sense of humor about him. He ends up being the accomplice to Caroline, actually, in a really good scene in the book, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
he is meant to be very roguish. I'm going to just interject here for a second. So he is basically the prequel character, the uncle of the main character of the saga, right, of John Carlyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's really supposed to set the stage for the fact that this character is is eventually so John Carlyle is a spy in the in the British army, right? So mm. he's really that preface to him. Where does you know that that's in his genes, right? It came through his family. So we're supposed to almost get that sense of of what's later to come in the series through him. And um, so I, I I thought that that was really interesting that you said that because that's exactly what's the goal. To, and, and I know he's not a primary character, but he's such a pivotal one in the story. So. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, he uh, he shows up and he just he really takes command and uh, it, it creates like a really surprising dynamic throughout the the main flow of the of you know the story of the main characters. But um, and then with like characters like Gates, I mean that that one I really slipped into pretty easily. He's very uh, has a very strong sense of duty and loyalty, and at the same time he's very protective of in, uh, India, Caroline when he inter interacts with her and. But uh, yeah, he has massive respect for Merrick. He's always there to do the right thing. And I, I loved that role. I, I love playing that kind of guy. So that's funny too. So I'm going to full disclosure here. So Lieutenant okay. Gates is my husband. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> So I wrote this book um, as a 20 year anniversary present to my husband. It was like, cause he had gone through me through the whole counseling experience. Um, he had been by my side through some really, really bad times. So it was my way of giving a gift back to him. And my husband very meticulously teaches me everything. Like so the scene where he's teaching India how to use the, the weapon, the pistol, right? It's very specific. And that's how my husband, when he's teaching me to do something, okay, this is how we're gonna do it. And he's very, yeah. you know, specific and stuff. I went at that character always how my husband, and essentially we know he meets a woman later in the story. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of see a little romance brew for him there and she's supposed to be me. And she actually say, becomes, yeah. she becomes India's accomplice in, in later in the story. She meets her and she happens to have almost no hair essentially. And I did that purposely for people who know me to know that that was me as a character, but it was because um, people always ask me, they're like, are you ever in your books? I'm like, I'm everywhere. But if you want me to specifically be me, I can do that too. So uh, so you got to narrate my husband. So it was funny when they were, when we were doing, uh, when we were casting him, they're like, who do you want to do your husband in this book? I'm like, I don't know, Jason Clark. All right. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, it's an honor. We had to choose, girl. You did well. I know. I, know. I was like, who do I want to narrate my husband? So there you go. Full disclosure there. Thank you. Oh, that's, that's great. I was going to say, I really love that you guys were really happy with getting those notes and directions. Again, I, I think it's something that authors are now becoming to be a bit more involved in the process of the audiobooks and providing you guys with that guidance may be looked at by some TJ as quote unquote control freak. But I see it as providing the actor with as much information because they don't know this. It's not like they're portraying someone that's been portrayed before or someone that they know that this certain kind of mannerisms or this kind of a thing. So, you know, being provided with that is such a gift, I think, to the actors. You know, I rather know what I'm looking and walking into and then still be provided with that freedom to make it pretty, you know? And I think that that's what you guys do. You're provided with the, the guidelines and then you make it your own based on the stuff. So I just wanted to make, kind of get on that page. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to say just a couple of things because I've neglected to say specifically about, about voicing Merrick. I was just talking about the actor's process. So uh, just, just picking up on what you were saying, TJ, it's funny that uh, you mentioned you're the you know, third child. So am I. 
So I, kinda, I, could, I could feel it, uh, I, feel it I feel a kind of a kinship there. And Merritt is someone who's living under an assumed name and has had his, his captaincy thrust upon him. He's, he's living up to all these expectations and also trying to clear his family's name. So um, for me, I, I had a lovely way of, of peeing into his, his insecurities as well as his strengths that sort of gave him a vulnerability, I think. That's what I, what I should have said earlier on anyway. For as strong as he is, though, he's incredibly, you know, he's so formed, but yet he's got so many insecurities as a character. He's yeah. forced to be a captain, but yet there's those moments of like, oh my gosh, I'm a captain now. Like, I'm in charge of all these people. You know what I mean? There's 400 men on this ship and they're all under me, you know, and he's got yeah. so much going on. And it kind of rivals that that situation of being the youngest child, sometimes the most, like, underestimated or the baby of a family where people don't yeah. really expect much of you that you're just going to, like, <laughs> you know, and so it, it tell me, keeps tell, me in. tell me about it. <laughs> well, and that was me and my family as the youngest they're like is she gonna do anything besides boys and clothes when she grows up you know and here I went into this very responsible role in medicine that I did and so you know you still go yeah. through those moments of I'm still the baby in my family and everyone no one trusts my advice when I give it I'm like hello but you know I'm always that person <laughs> nobody takes my advice <laughs> yeah nope speaking of ships I'm going to let you drive TJ for the rest of okay. these questions so your show. I do I do want to add in one thing about the notes. So one of the things I did was say, and I, I'm sure if you guys read those notes, I think you did, I said play to the second balcony. And I'm sure Nicholas is an, as an actor and Jason and Catherine as actors, when you see someone say play to the second balcony, you're like, oh, really? Shall I? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of but, doing a tattoo of NKU, no, never knowingly underplayed. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's a maxim I live by. Well, and here's the thing that I loved about that. I really wanted you guys to like be, for me, it's a movie in my ears. Like I want my books to sound like someone is sitting in the theater and it's, but it's just being talked out for them or like a 1920s radio show or 30s radio show where everything's really becoming for the character. So um, as I get to listen to you guys, I get to hear that kind of like we're in the theater that, you know, that the, the curtain's gone up and we have this amazing thing playing out for us. So that was really kind of my goal of those notes. So thank you for not thinking me a control freak. Because <laughs> I, I really, when I write them out, I go through that moment of like, don't say too much. Don't say too much. <laughs> yeah, I think it's part of the imposter syndrome. And as well, I know we've talked about in the past, is the fact that that letting go and also the fact that we're women sometimes when we're looked at, unfortunately, as the control freak when we're providing leadership. And for men, it's like, oh, he's such a good leader. And I'm going, um, hello. <laughs> but yeah, so I just wanted to make, you know, kind of have that conversation and to let other authors know that they can do this. And you're, you're, you're helping the, the, the actors, but also providing them with a better opportunity to get the character. So yeah. Absolutely. Just to add to that as well, just from the actor's perspective, not only is it efficient to have notes from whoever is taking a creative ownership of some of the interpretation of the character, as actors, we're also very mindful of how personal these manuscripts are to the authors. It's not just a job. We're aware that we're taking your baby and we are giving it a life in a different context, in a way that, you, that might not be the first thing that you would think of for that character. So we need to know that the direction that we want to take that character and take that interpretation is in line with how you've envisaged it and, and what you want for your project as well, because we are just small cogs in the great machine of this whole production, which has been 
so clearly steered by by TJ and by any author in, in this position. You know, it's interesting that you say that. So I, I brought this up on the Villains podcast, but I think it's really important like to say it. I have, because I write in counseling, I really struggle with separation anxiety, with handing my manuscripts, my characters over to individuals. And every author's journey is very, very different. And how they feel, some people like, go interpret, do whatever you want with it. And then there are people like me who it's like, I really need to feel this trust with the people that I hand them over to because they're really interpreting. La- I mean, in, in every author, it's a layer of them. But for me, it's it's very personal because it's steeped in my own mental health and my own writing, my own personal struggles. So it's really nice to like, you know, hear that people are like, okay, you know, this is great. And, but also it's great to see what you find in the characters, what you deliver. Like when, you know, Jason does some of that, his dialogues and I listen to him, I'm like, you know, I didn't hear it that way, but that's really amazing where he finds humor and where it comes through in his voice or where, when Nicholas comes through in a different way or provides some of his own feedback, it's like, I didn't look at it that way. So I learn a lot through you guys and in that trust between myself, the production company and you guys is really key for me because it helps me feel that like, okay, that connectedness, not only to the story, but that connectedness to you and to the characters and making it all like really come through for the listener. Because like I said, my goal ultimately, why else hire a cast of, you know, nine people? I could hire one person, which would be brilliant too. But I'm trying to bring a lot of people in to give like this total experience to the whole story as well. So that's just some of my like, kind of my thoughts around the whole production and everything too. So, so I get to ask you questions now. Yay. Um, and by any, <laughs> at any point, you guys can interrupt me and ask me questions. You can throw it back at me. That's always fair. Anything's free game. There's no, like, there's no holds bar. You guys can ask me anything you want, even about the CD hotel I'm in. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, uh, but so you guys are heroes. So this is the nice, this is the, the friendly team on this call. We had villains last week and that was, they were very naughty in that call too. So what's the best about portraying a hero or a heroine? We'll start with Nicholas <laughs> or this hero specifically. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, if you aim for just the good stuff, it can be very boring. The great thing is that all the, the characters are flawed. So you play to their flaws and kind of mix that with their strengths and you've got something that's a little more real, I suppose, more interesting, psychologically speaking, I suppose. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Merrick's great fun. You know, he's, he's got all of his hang-ups and his issues and all the rest of it. And then he meets this amazing person who kind of unlocks him. That's great fun. Catherine. Well, you know, this is one of the first heroes I've ever played. Yeah, I'm I always, you telling me that. always cast as the villain. So it's so refreshing and a little intimidating to suddenly be in this slightly unfamiliar territory for me because I'm always, it's always just be as evil as you can. And with this, it's the opposite. <laughs> find, find the purity, the find the innocence. <laughs> exactly. Find, find, find the sweetness. I mean, India is such a complex character that for her, it wasn't so much a case of playing the good person or the bad person. It's just being true to how she's feeling in that moment. She, she's not especially guided by hugely strong morals, I don't think. I believe it's just that she's in a, she's in a position where she just wants to protect herself. But when she finds that strength within, within herself towards the second half of the book, she begins to take some moral responsibility, I think, for more of her actions. And she starts to make decisions based on the fact that she sees herself fully as one of the good guys. And it's very nice to see her step into that role. So I feel like becoming the heroine was something that India 
took as a journey upon herself within this production pretty much the same as I did. You know, what's interesting about her too is she's kind of the more corrupt of the two. I mean, Merrick is very much a very good hero, right? Like we know there are sides of him that are, you know, that he struggles with, right? But he really is very heroic. She's kind of the little bit on the wild side, you know what I mean? And we actually will see her that way later in the series. So, you know, and, and the fun thing about Merrick and her is he's always a step behind her, kind of. Like, yeah. he's always kind of missing things. Like, she's off doing something, and he's like, he doesn't even maybe even know it happened, yeah. you know? He's he he, he kind of he comes in with preconceived ideas about her and has them all knocked out of the park. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And at one point, she even sneaks into the Hellfire Club, and he's there, and he totally misses it. Um, <laughs> Um, and she comes back to the hotel, all this has happened and, you know, we, we don't see, you know, and he's just kind of like, oh, she's sleeping, she stayed here overnight, you know, and we know that this- If he only knew. With, <laughs> right, with Clayton Carlisle, Jason's character, um, you know, getting into trouble, basically. So, um, but she's kind of, the, the oxymoron, all my total titles are always purposefully kind of deceptive. Well, it says man of war, right? We think of the ship, we think of Merrick, but it's actually a bit woman of war. It's a little bit about like mm. India's battle, um, a woman's battle in this time period, you know, and how she survives and what she has to do. And one of the things when I created that character was our foremothers are often, we don't hear their stories, but we know they happened and we know women were victim of war. So what, what, what would that have, I mean, what could it have looked like, you know, through a modern lens, looking at an old time period a little bit. And she really, you know, kind of is, you know, a pirate isn't, isn't no offense to Johnny Depp, but it's not that character. A real pirate is not a nice guy. Right. And they're not going to, you know, women were a casualty sometimes in these situations. So she's really, you know, kind of learning how to survive in this, you know, man's world. And so she's, she's really, the title is both should be man of war and technically woman of war, because it's really both of their stories. You know, Merrick is very formed, yet he's learning. And she's really kind of coming into her own through the story. So, but on her own, he's not making it happen for her. She's kind of doing it, you know, on her own. And which is what I loved about both of you guys together. You know, you haven't heard yourself together too much yet, but I hear like both of the journeys contrasting yet coming together, you know, so yeah. And Jason, you're not to be forgotten there. Oh, nice. <laughs> so what, what do you, you do lots of heroes. I know you do. And you do lots of bad guys too. So just what are your thoughts about heroes and playing those roles and. Oh yeah. I could talk about this stuff for a while, but um, I, yeah, when it comes to audiobooks, I, I play a lot of heroes, but um, I actually similarity to Catherine, I, uh, played a lot of villains in like stage and whenever I was like doing on-screen stuff I think that's just what casting people saw me as maybe it was I don't know something in the way I performed but I played a lot of villains and the thing is I, I love heroes heroes are my favorite characters uh, in any story I'm like I'm kind of a big nerd like I, I love like the, the more good that's in them the better like the more admirable a person the more I'm like yeah I love that character you know so I um Getting the opportunity to play heroes is is always happy a happy time for me because I think uh, heroes differentiate themselves because they they want to stand up and and do right by those they love and they're put into scenarios where they have to take the hard road they have to face challenges in order to 
protect those they love. They're not after their own goal. They're not doing things solely out of their own gratification. So I think that's interesting. And, and it creates, like what Nicholas was saying, it reveals flaws in these characters because maybe it highlights their weaknesses if they fail, if they're facing all these challenges. And I, I don't know, it, it adds a lot of interesting dynamic to playing heroes. So I've, I've had a great time with that. Specifically with Gates, he's so diligently loyal and believes so wholeheartedly in this chain of command, in the systems that he's part of. Because I, I especially when I'm playing anyone who is military background, sort of the idea behind all that is that if we don't have these systems in place, then we don't really have anything, you know, if we don't do good for the sake of doing good, if we don't, you know, stay true to our duty, then everything will just fall apart. And I think with Gates, that's highlighted in a lot of his interactions. And uh, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. Thank you. Well, and that character is nice because he is, he's the captain, he's the lieutenant of the Marines, right? He's the head mm -hmm. of the Marines, essentially. Yeah. And most people like, so this time period is 1755. It's actually the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years War, and it's the beginning of it. So, you know, it, most people don't know a lot about military history, just to give some nuances here on a man of war or would be a ship of the line. They not only have the sailors, but they have the Marines, right? They're the bodyguards are the ones you would, you know, protect also in fight, right? Because these were fighting ships. So his character is the captain, would be, now we would call them the captain of the Marines, but at the time in 1755, it was a lieutenant because he served under Merrick. So he would have technically been his bodyguard. So he's got that very important position, like wherever Merrick goes, he goes. And we know Merrick as a character comes into the story, not originally as the captain. So he has the tendencies of, of an officer below his station. He tends to forget sometimes his job is now it's to stay put, you know, and now it's to, mm -hmm. you know, to run the ship as opposed to being the first lieutenant who's maybe more active amongst the crew. So he's got a really interesting role. He has to be the total protector, but he also kind of extrapolates that to India now too. He takes responsibility for really everybody on the ship as a character. So you get to be that protective hero per se in this story. Yeah. I, I did have a question for you, yeah. TJ. Uh, yeah. You mentioned that part of your job is research. And mm -hmm. when you began writing, was there sort of like the question of, well, what did you want to research or what was, what brought you to this, this kind of topic, uh, this point in history, what made you want to write fiction in that? In uh, Well, so there's two po components to this. There's the Revolutionary War component and then the French and Indian War component or Seven Years War, however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So the Revolutionary War component really goes back to when I was, and this is, I always feel so embarrassed when I say this, but I love the hair and the look of the Revolutionary War and the styles and the clothing. And that was something that's just very romantic and very beautiful. And as a young girl, when I was like five and six, I, uh, I saw a show, it was, it, now if you watch it, it's terribly dated, but it was called The Bastard by John Jakes. And they did this television show. I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up with, you know, the big sweeping TV sagas and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I saw the clothing and the look of the time and fell really in love with that look. And I mean, I, mean, I was a very young girl. And then my father, seeing that kind of interest in me, took me to Colonial Williamsburg, which is obviously in, in the US and it's, it's, it's really reminiscent of, and it is a revolutionary town. And I just fell in love with the look of the time period and just it became like an obsession with me from when I was a young girl to reading about it, falling in love with it, wanting to know everything about it, right? So when it came to Man of War to take this direction back, I had to tell the story of their predecessors, right? Because this is basically the prequel, right? It's taking us into that saga, explaining the background. 
But the truth is Man of War was written first, actually. Well, technically the idea was first. So I told you, I always had ideas to write, though I didn't write. About 20 years ago, when I was in school, I had this idea for a sea battle and this story about this hero and he had red hair. And I confess, I loved uh, Toby Stevens, the actor, and he was in a movie called Cambridge Spies. And I saw him and thought, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's brilliant. He's going to be huge someday. And he really became the idea for Captain Merrick. Flash forward later, he did Black Sables, which is a total coincidence. He just was this idea for Merrick and everything, and then never touched the story again. Well, it came to needing to tell the backstory to, to the Rebels and Redcoat saga. I said, okay, I need to go back 20 years. What was going on 20 years before this? Well, the French and Indian War was starting, or the Seven Years' War. Okay, where did it start? Now, I could have done it as a land battle, but I was like, well, why would I do it as a land battle when I can do it as a sea battle? Because that's really where it got started. So, but when you do the Royal Navy, you have to know it and you have to know it well. I mean, like you can't mess that up in any which way, shape or form. But what most people know about the Royal Navy, they know from either now or from Nelson's time. And while some things are, are similar, there's a lot that isn't. So I actually had to go back and research 1755 and then I ended up buying theses from people who wrote about that time period. I bought books, I bought, you know, resources. I probably read about a hundred books and I'm not kidding about the Royal Navy. I actually went to Portsmouth. I know one of the historians for the Royal Navy. I actually toured the victory. I mean, I read books about just the language to get it right. And I fell in love with it. I, I actually, through doing this research, it became my second passion behind doing the Revolutionary War. So I know that's a long answer to you, Jason, but it was not a straight line. You know, the love was really the American Revolutionary War. It was kind of a, you know, a parallel line depending on where the story went. So yeah, it was a, it was a broad, broad question. So yeah, no, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. It's great, great to hear you were inspired by Toby, Toby Stevens. He's a good friend of mine. I was just working with him a couple of weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> oh, I that. So do you know how weird that was for me that you said you posted that and like literally I tweeted yeah. Danielle. I'm like, Danielle, I just had the weirdest serendipity in the world. <laughs> I'm like, the voice of my Merrick is acting with the muse of my Merrick. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah. But I mean, I liked, I liked him way, way back. He did Cambridge Spies, which was mm -hmm. just, I mean, that was really, I think, early on in his, earlier on in his, his BBC or career, that part of it. And I, I was just like, this man is just brilliant, right? And like, he so inspired me, just his performance and how he moved and everything. And I was like, boy, but no, I could see him in, as a sea captain on the ocean. And then of course, later he did Black Sails, right? But he's always been in my mind. And so I had this weird kind of moment of like, whoa. <laughs> uh, so The funny thing was when I was talking with him a, a few weeks ago, I, I was mentioning this book and he had no, I had no clue. He had no clue that he's playing the main Oh my character. God. So you guys, I've now officially had a moment, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so, so crazy and kind of cool yeah. for me too, you know, yeah. but, um, but it's even cooler to have my hero and heroine and my other hero here on this call. So this is amazing. So thank you. I have a, a so another question. So I gave you guys some hard scenes. Merrick's got a lot of, I mean, all of you guys have hard scenes and I understand it's hard to not give some things away here, but you're welcome to give a little bit away here. So what do you feel like you struggled with? And it didn't necessarily have to be a hard scene, but what did you struggle with most in maybe in one of your narrations of Merrick or when you were working with them? What did we struggle with? I mean, I didn't, I, there was, there was, there was no, no real struggle. It, 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 the way it's written, it, it just, you know, it leads you through it. Beautiful. I think, I mean, it, for me, I suppose on a technical 
issue was just trying to imagine what all these incredible naval commands I was giving were, what they actually meant. You know what I mean? Well, you did <laughs> Which, such I mean, a brilliant job. Because it's so, well, it's so authentic. You know, it's real. I and mean, you know that you've done the research. You know, I wish I could bring up a few of those incredible naval phrases. They're so great. They taste fantastic when you're delivering them. Well, and you did such a brilliant job. It was funny because I was just texting Danielle the other day. I'm like, he does this lingo flawlessly, like flawlessly, even the way you say like. I'm an army brat. My dad was in the army, so I know how to give orders. <laughs> nice. But, but it was, I mean, there's some hard words. Like all of you had to say them. There's bosun and coxswain and I'm like away aloft and like I'm giving you all this language. And you can't do a Royal Navy book, especially from this time period, if you're not really giving the language correctly. I mean, because it sets the stage for the story. So one of my biggest fears was, am I going to have to give like everybody a glossary and how to say everything? And and I'm listening to deliver. I'm like, oh, he's got this down. Like he must have been like in the, you know, he must be a sailor or he's just, well, you're a great actor. But I mean, you really like there was, it never like sounded like this wasn't your language. Like your second, like you knew this. I mean, you fooled us well. <laughs> I, I got away with it, right? <laughs> well, and there, and there just is a lot of them. I mean, and that was one of the struggles of creating this book. I was like, oh my God, I have to get the language right. Because if you don't, if I give you like, I mean, granted, not all my language, I mean, because we, we, we're not telling the story in the time period voice. Like, we understand that. I mean, this is a historical piece. You do the best that you can, but sailor language, you can't get wrong. You just No, you it's true. And I, I think what's really nice is that from a listener's point of view, whether you understand the naval jargon or not, it gives you real color and it makes it feel like you're there. You can smell the sea, you can smell the... The, the ropes, you know, the tarry ropes and stuff. It's it's, right. it's it's fantastic. So you don't need to understand all the terminology, but to hear it spoken is really refreshing. Yeah, and it's like like stay low as you go, and all these like different. I mean, when you think about what it means, it makes sense. But if you're going under a ship deck, it's so low. You know, you've got to you know how I did that. I read so many books about it, but it's interesting. Like if you watch Master and Commander, that's an amazing movie. They do a brilliant of job of it there. Obviously, those books are incredible, and there's a lot of jargon there. But there are dictionaries actually on sailor language. So you just, you do a ton of reading. I talked to a lot of people who this is what they did for, you know, like who they just understood it. Some scholarly people who helped me with it. And some of it, you, you know, you do the best you can and you try to be as accurate as you can. But you always worry when you hand it over to somebody. Like I have a lot of Oneida words in my other books. And I, we, you know, we met with an Oneida, someone from the Oneida Nation to help us translate those words and how to say those. But, you know, the minute you hand them over to a narrate, you're always like, ooh, you know, have fun with those, right? So, yeah, thank you. Like I said, it was amazing when I was listening to it. I'm like, go, oh, Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> so, Catherine, I'm going to turn it over to you. So, you had a lot of hard, you had a lot of hard scenes in this story. A lot, a lot of hard scenes. It, it, it was just a roller coaster. Honestly, the challenge of this role didn't come so much from technical language. It came more from the sheer intensity of so many of these scenes. <laughs> Poor Caroline goes through so much. It's not like there's one pivotal scene where something horrific happens and she has a bit of fallout from it a couple scenes later and then it's back to a more basic narrative just to progress the storyline along. It's like almost every, every scene that she's in, she's got some sort of turmoil, some sort of struggle or something truly horrific happens to her. And it happens a lot. I remember when I did her ages ago, first doing the audition for this role mm -hmm. and I remember saying to a couple of voiceover friends of mine after I'd done the audition I said listen I've just done this audition and I'm not sure if I went 
overboard. I'm not sure if I gave too much in that audition. But in the audition, Pete, she's trapped in a sinking vessel. She's going to drown if she doesn't get someone's attention. And she's terrified. And she has so much to explain to the complete stranger who comes to her aid that it's just complete intensity. And I think it's very telling that what I thought might have been too much was actually just enough to get me the role. Because it is that level of intensity and that level of extremity of scene and of emotion that I think really makes her. Because she isn't a woman that's there to be restrained. She's a woman that's there to throw hell to the wind and express how she's feeling because she finds that strength within herself. I think about your audition because I remember when Jacques, so Jacqueline Protho was the casting director for this. We all know Jacques. Hey, Jacques. Um, And (laughs) she directed me. We were looking for the right India, Caroline, and I gave her this list of all these things I needed. Okay, I need her to do this, 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 this. And she's like, I got her. I got her. I gotcha. I know the, I know the gal. And so she sent me your audition and she's like, okay, Trace. I can't wait to hear what you think, right? And so I went, when I was, like I said, for me, listening to characters is very personal. Like I almost have to go like in a private place in my own room. Usually I get very emotional when I listen to them. I frequently end up crying. I'm a big baby, I admit it. But I was listening to her and I was just like, I believe it. She's stuck in a hold. She's chained to the wall. And this is the end of her life. Like that's how she comes into this story. This woman comes in bare at the bottom and it's her rise up. Basically it's her resurrection. It's her Phoenix, you know, in this story. So when I listened to it, I was like, yeah, yeah, yep. Yep. And, and, you know, and, and Jack was like, what do you think? Should we, any direction? I'm like, she knows she understands this character already from the get go. So think of it as being kind of overdoing it, but you also don't know me and you don't know, like, I love when people overdo it. So (laughs) it makes it really, really easy now that you, you know, but now actually I give note in auditions because to try to facilitate people and say, Hey, listen, this is what I'm looking for so that, you know, I can really help people. But you guys have I didn't have to give you guys any notes. You were all so good and you kind of figured it out on your, you know, on your own. So, because I remember Nicholas's audition too. I wasn't even really, you know, you just read something and I got it on my phone. Jack's like, oh my God, you got to hear this. And she sent it to me. I'm like, well, I guess there doesn't need to, I don't even, we don't need any more auditions. I'm like, it's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a done deal. And, and then, uh, so uh, Jason, I'm going to turn it over to you. Was it, I mean, was there, you didn't have a lot of perspective, but you had a ton of characters in the story. Uh-huh. You know. Yeah, yeah. I my my characters sort of pop in here and there, and I I didn't yeah I didn't have too many things to struggle with. I will say I think just by nature of you know my stuff being wild dialogue, and this is sort of spoilery, but there are characters I voice who get injured or engage in combat, and uh, I think it, diving into those scenes after you know maybe the last scene I voiced as that character was a very sort of placid, quiet scene. It's sort of like getting shot out of a cannon. So needing to like build up, build up to that sort of self-generate in order to reach where they needed to be in this climactic moment of their lives. That was a bit of a struggle, but it's just actor stuff, I guess. But yeah, that's pretty much all I Well, and and so Jason, he's obviously, he's got a military character. He has Clayton Carlisle. So he's kind of all over the place a lot. And it's fun because you show up as like little gemstones in the middle of the book everywhere. I'm like, oh, there's Jason, you know, as I'm listening to it. But then it's kind of that like that with James and everybody we hear in different spots. But Jason, I remember, so you auditioned for something else, which were, so full disclosure to everybody, once you join my cast, I keep you, you don't get to disappear. Like I, I bring you in and you're, 
you become part of my family. <laughs> I collect you all because Nicholas has already been in one of my books previously. And that character is ongoing because it's a saga, right? So everybody comes back. But uh, Jason, it was funny because everyone at uh, Audio Flow was like, we got to work with him. You got to work with him. You got to work with him. And I had heard a lot of your stuff before, but I was like, I got to find that right spot for him. And the funny thing is, is I believe this is your first historical. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, nothing in this time period at all. So we brought you to the dark side. Oh, know? yeah, um, no, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Happy and it was here. fun because I was like, yeah, I get to tell people he's in history now. So because you do so much. But I had heard you for another character, which, you know, full disclosure, we're hopefully going to see Jason again in another book as a different character as well. But his audition was, I was just like, which one, which voice is his real voice? Like I heard you do a couple different voices in it. And then you did a book called Sinners, which I commonly made a statement about Danielle Lanzrata wrote it. Danielle, and you do yeah. like all these different voices in it. I'm like, is, are these all Jason? So he does such a, he's so good at like masking and disguising and doing chameleon with his voice that like it's, there are times when I'm listening to the actual, to Man Award, I'm like, is that Jason? No, 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 that, that's not him. That's somebody else. So um, that was one of the things I loved when you did your audition is you just, you could do so many different voices. So I could put you like in so many amazing places and it's like little gemstones that like show up in the middle of the, of the story. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I could make jokes about me not having a personality at all. And I just sort of make up voices. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's a blast to get to play different characters and just sort of pop up and be like, okay, who's this, who's this guy? And then, you know, I'll have one chapter where it's just Jamie being like, Mama, you know, like little British boy. And I was just like, oh, that, that didn't work. I'll try that again. Jason does a great job for kid voices. That's for sure. So that was the debate because we have two children in this story. We have Kent, who you guys know very, very well. Um, and then we also have Jamie, who's a very important character, actually. He is the older, he's the son of James McKesson, but he's the older brother of Alexi McKesson, who is our hero of the next three books that I'm writing. So the rebel is due to come out and that will actually come out in audio next year. And then there's the rebel, the raider and the renegade. So those are three more books that go in the saga actually. So yeah, so he, these are the little boy Kent, everybody on the last call said he was their favorite character. They loved Kent <laughs> as a character. Um, did you guys have a favorite character in the story besides your own? <laughs> 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 uh, I I love India. I think she's awesome. And and yeah, getting to play Clayton was a lot of fun too. Yeah, I, I was a big fan of Clayton actually. I, I really liked I really liked the dynamic that that formed there. But then of course Kent just completely utterly fell in love with Kent. And I suppose because I'm seeing it through India's eyes, and in most scenes she's taking on a mothering role to him, so she wants to be there to protect him. So I think the minute I saw him, I just felt very protective and instantly just wanted everything to be okay for him so yeah, yeah india is my favorite she's just fascinating just a real kind of my goodness the, the the trauma that she's been through and you know just yeah fascinating but also the subsidiary all the little kind of other characters who pop up with their little villainous schemes left right and center they're fantastic you know gives so much light and color <laughs> well and the thing is there's so many villains in our life you know what i mean and whether they mean to be like where they're really menacing villains or they're just people who cause come in and cause problems i mean she's on a ship of 400 men right there's three women on this ship so i mean and just because you're a sailor doesn't mean you're like the nicest guy right <laughs> um although we know merrick promises her that nothing will ever happen to her on the ship right 
but her worst nightmare is kind of living through. She just got off this horrible pirate ship, essentially, and she's dropped into the middle of a ship of 400 men. So it's kind of a, and Kent, he, Merrick very smartly says, I'm going to stick Kent with her you know, and give her something to keep her focused. If you think about it, it's kind of a very non-menacing person in her life. And and so I don't have any children. So when I was writing Kent, I, I used my next door neighbor and I just watched him go about his business. And I was like, okay, you know, what does he do? And how does he act? And he, he really became Kent. So he's a fun character. He was fun to write. And he was a nice comic relief a little bit in the story because mm-hmm. there's a lot of, lot of heavy components of the story, essentially. So having seen so much of, of this of, of India's very dark narrative throughout this book, along with the lightness and the humor that other characters bring in. When we meet Kent, I instantly thought, well, there's just a reminder that all of those men that have done those horrible things to her did start out as Kent, did start out mm-hmm. as very sweet little boys who have just been put in a society that gives them permission to act the way that they have towards women, towards India. And I think Kent's just a very a very strong reminder that we aren't born with any kind of evilness in us and we are all Mm -hmm. blue-eyed and you know bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and innocent in our youth and then it's just the way that we are shaped as we step into adulthood and the decisions that we make that can turn us into the goodies or the baddies. Mm-hmm. Well, and Kent occurs, if, if Nichols, I don't know if you remember, you might not, but Kent is actually was in The Traitor. He was in the background with Merrick in The Traitor. We, we just yeah. see his name mentioned a couple of times. Course, yeah. mm-hmm. So we know that those character, that character actually is going to carry forward in the story. We just don't know necessarily. So no character I do doesn't appear again. Even Lieutenant Gates comes back eventually too, because like, I'm not that much of a mastermind. It's just more of like where Merrick goes, these people would be. You just don't realize it. So I'm kind of hiding that. Parks too, I hope. I love the, uh, the friction between Parks and Merrick. Well, it's funny because a lot of people hated that character when they read it. They're like, oh, I don't like him because he's trouble. But he makes sense in the face of what's gone on in the story, right? He was a midship. He was an officer, too. He's been supplanted by someone else and someone who technically, because there's a lot of rules on a ship, as you guys learn, right? There's like a basically like a caste system, essentially. And to go from the, you know, the non-officers into the officers as hard as it is, and then to rise amongst the officers is, is even harder. You know, I really based that journey on Admiral Lord Nelson. So I don't know how interested or how, how much you know about him. Every, every girl's got a military hero, I guess, maybe. And mine would be Admiral Lord Nelson. I just love him as a character on the page, as well as a real historical character. And his rise was very similar to how Merrick's was. He actually spent three years on a ship where he didn't actually touch land at one point. So I really loved that journey and tried to like build that into the story a little bit because I think it, you know, but that friction between him as Parks is based on some of, you know, the way that whole system works right on a ship. So I do have some other questions. So these are directed. I'm going to direct these around at everybody. So everyone's going to get a different question. Nicholas, I've got one for you. So I, you already answered one. You, like, did you know anything about sailing on ships? Have you ever done anything with ships before? Is this your first ship trip? <laughs> well, um, uh, you may or may not know, but I lived down on the south coast of the United Kingdom then in uh, a little town called Shoreham by Sea, uh, which uh, has a great kind of maritime tradition. It's where Charles II made his escape to France. 
Ah. Uh, when he was a lot younger before he came back for the restoration. But for me, my closest experience with sailing I, I, my, is my hobby is kite surfing. And that there are, there are no technical terms. There are a few technical <laughs> terms, but mostly it's, oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the one that I use mostly. Uh, <laughs> but I've, I've had a little experience of sailing as well down in, uh, in the southwest in, in Devon, but uh, when I was a lot younger. And also several years ago, I read a series of books. Uh, oh, no, gosh, now I'm going to have to reach into my bottomless drawer of, of lost memories for the name of the author and the name of the books. But they were uh, 19th century naval um, histories, sort of adventure books, a bit like Hornblower, but, but different. Mm -hmm. It'll come to me at some other point. I can't remember. Have a look on Audible. You'll find them. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah it's it's i mean the, the sea is a, is definitely a subject that's close to my heart so was there anything that merrick did that you disagreed with in the story or that you like some of the decisions he made where you were like mm, i don't know that well, i would have done I mean, that i mean from from my perspective i'm a lover not a fighter you know there's an awful lot of blood that gets spilled <laughs> i'm kind of like oh do you have to can't we just sit down have a cup of tea and talk things over <laughs> <laughs> but that really wouldn't make for great drama, would it? <laughs> no, and that was the side of his character, which he admits at the opening of the story. He's like, I'm a man of war and I'm very good yeah. at it. You know, he almost mm -hmm. embraces the fact of his character that he's, he has this, while he's a loving, kind individual, he's also a fighter. He's definitely a lover and a fighter, per se, than a it. lover, not a fighter. It's in his contract, you know, he's, he's read the small print, but yeah, absolutely. And, um, and he's a terrific hero. He's, he's, he's great, you know, in that respect. And it's great. You root for him. So Yeah. And when I wrote him, it was like, I looked at him and I'm like, well, as a sea captain, you have a tough job, right? You kind of have to go to places you may not want to. And we see him go to places where you're like, ooh, you know, he made some decisions where you're like, ugh. I don't know that I would have done that, but, you yeah. know. In, it's in, it's in such his, a hard job. It's such a hard job. He's got to... Uh, you know, feel that the decisions that he makes are ones that will be supported by his crew because he's he's out on a ledge, you know. And if he if he makes the wrong decisions and ends up with a mutiny on his hands, it's game over. So there's there's that. He's not just got to fight the enemy; he's got to kind of fight his own crew to keep them in line. And it's a tough, tough yeah. job. Yeah, and he's certainly in this weird spot too, where this woman is now on his ship, and they have this mystery that they're trying to unravel. And there's a lot of people questioning him on all ends because of just the, the predicament they've all been put in, you know, and then we find out the family dynamic that plays into this later too. You know, he's trying to hide some of his own history too um, from everybody as well. So, yeah. I, so I was all curious. While, I didn't... <laughs> all the while, you know, all of his incredible kind of focus is getting just blown apart by this incredible woman who's appeared fallen into his Yeah, let's not let's <laughs> just not forget that he's kind of fallen head over heels from the moment he sees her, you know, and we see kind of the cracks in him because he's he's never really had to think about women, right? He starts on a ship when he's like, you know, 12 years old and he like has no sense of being, you know, in the he's company married, of a woman. He's married to the sea, he's married to the ship. You know, the Boudicca is his queen uh, and all of a right. sudden somebody else comes in, the Empress of India. Right, exactly. So I'm going to turn one over to Catherine. So we've talked, we did talk about this character, but now that you, when I talked to you originally, you were just getting started and now that you've kind of finished, what did you learn new about her? Like as we moved along from when we initially talked to when you got to the end of the story, was there anything that was really new that you didn't expect or that she did that you didn't expect? I mean, I, I certainly wasn't expecting her to break quite so many laws in her pursuit <laughs> of independence and trying to 
trying to readdress the imbalance in her life. I knew that she'd be contrary. I knew that she would stand up for herself when she starts to find that strength. But I certainly wasn't expecting her to be uh, setting things on fire. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to give too much away, but um, safe to say she she does more than just be unladylike. I think we see a lot of heroines in uh, historical dramas who upset the status quo by being very modern women with a modern mindset, which is scandalous to a sort of historical context, to a historical society. But I feel like you could put India into the modern day and she would still be scandalous in the way that she goes about achieving the things that she wants. She's almost too modern for the time period um, and, and fits perfectly in the modern day as much as she does in in the era that she's that she's based in. You know, when I, I wrote her, I often like to think that women go through a lot, right, historically. I kind of want to believe that our foremothers, like they were, they were doing stuff behind their men's back, right? Like this was going on for real. Like they didn't know guys are going about their business. Yeah, she won't do that. I gotta, gotta worry about her while they're secretly kind of like running the world on the other end. You know what I mean? And so I wanted it to be this, this component of her, you know, like being very a woman of her time, but also the idea that maybe, you know, there were people who came up with, you know, the suffragettes, they were ahead of their time. You know, I mean, when we look historically at women, these were women pushing boundaries. Even when we look at, you know, like the roaring twenties, when it's shortening their skirts and, you know, being a little scandalous, they, and then we went back to longer skirts and body socks and all those things. There were women pushing the mark even back then. It were slow to catch up. But this tells me historically that these things probably were going on, that people were pushing the boundaries. And so I like to think of India as being a woman who got dropped in a really bad situation. And she's like, I'm going to play like the men do because I've got to survive now, you know, and and, and, I'm, and that's kind of how I like to look at her as being of all my hero heroines. She's the most corrupt. She's yeah. definitely the most she's the most like she's almost more of a pirate than Merrick essentially kind of has that component to him. But he has a lot more like rules and regulations being, I, I look at her as being almost the pirate a bit of the story. Um, she's yeah. learned to kind of exist in this world. And, and we see him later in the saga, further exasperated and further in love with her as he moves forward. You know, she's always a step ahead of him, you know, uh, doing things and stuff. Yeah. Well, Merrick's idea of doing a good job is, is, is pure efficiency and leadership through following the rules. whereas. Caroline's someone who has followed the rules that society has given her all her life and has had nothing to show for it. She doesn't get a career. She doesn't get respect. She doesn't get love. She follows by the rules just as Merrick does. And he gets to be captain and she gets raped. It, it's it's the, the complete the complete opposites of, of what life gives them as a result of following those rules. So by the time by the time we as an audience meet Caroline, she's at a point where the rules don't matter to her anymore. Yeah. So Jason, I'm going to direct you some historical questions because you're like not, a, this is like your historical foray over there. Uh. Um, so um, this, I, when you were presented with the idea of doing a historical and certainly one like this one, you know, what were your thoughts about that being, you know, not from, you know, not being your prim primary genre? Although I know, like I said, you do a decent amount of books, but certainly not really having a big historical background. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of my books are these, you know, modern romance books. And so I've, I've sort of slipped into a groove of how to deliver, how to deliver that kind of thing, you know, that sort of <laughs> smoldering, 
yeah, whatever. And, and uh, knowing that I was going into this historical, but also a historical that was based around, you know, sort of like espionage and military. And it wasn't this just a story about two people falling in love. It, it had all this entire uh, massive scope around it. I, I knew that I wasn't just going to be able to fall back on, you know, my usual sort of approach. Uh, so yeah, I just read the text and figured out the givens and tried to play the character and tried to play the scene. And one thing I did sort of struggle with in prep is that a, a big gap in my education is understanding how Americans spoke in the 1700s. So for characters like George Allen, I, I wanted to separate the sound from characters like Clayton. So I didn't want to add any sort of British English accent to him. But I was like, oh, I'll just be an American man. You know, that's in the notes. And, you know, that's as far as I understand, that's how they spoke. But I, I had to do a little bit of more prep to kind of get the feel of how people spoke at the time. But yeah, I just wanted to play the character and let them serve their function. Yeah. So it's interesting about that. So there would have been a mix of accents technically because yeah. of where people came from around the world. We know that New York City, especially in 1755, this is quite a bit before the American Revolutionary War, there would have been Dutch people, there would have mm -hmm. been people of German descent, there would have been British, there would have been a mixture. So it's really hard when I'm dealing with that to try to say accent, accent specific, unless I have a specific rule or where they're from. So that's kind of why I just say, let just give me something American here, because it really it's it's hard to kind of play on that. And there's so many accents already in the story. I just didn't want like too much more for the for the listener. Right. Like I wanted to make it easier, you know, yeah. and, and in this story, there's so much language and lingo and sailor language. And French, actually, John Hartley does a beautiful amount of French in this story. And so does uh, Catherine does some too, that I was like, okay, let's just make this real easy on the listener. But yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. You know, why, you know, what would he have sounded like? And certainly there's a very formal way they would talk, but they were also informal too. That was part of coming over to the colonies, right? If you, yeah. they were, they were kind of tossing away, you know, some of the rules and regulations which was one of the reasons I love writing American Revolutionary War is like, I don't have the regency to deal with. Like, I don't have all those mm. rules to deal with. I get to toss those away and say, go Bridgerton, you can deal with that. Like, and, and again, you know, the, the other parts of my story take place in upstate New York on the frontier where there was literally nobody, you had fallen off the earth up there. So the rules of society really don't, unless you're a British officer, which, you know, Nicholas plays obviously Merrick in those stories, the, a lot of those rules would have been completely, you know, gone essentially. So I just tried to make it more listener friendly, essentially, when we made some of those decisions. So I thought that's interesting that you said that. Yeah, no, it it, it works and it certainly suits the setting. And I, I think it's like a common thing when fiction, historical fiction approaches the American accent. It's it's become like, let's just, even if you're watching History Channel and someone's rereading a text from the 1700s, they just use contemporary American accent with a bit more of like a heightened tilt to it. But no, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. It's fascinating to wonder what it might really have been. I mean, there's even there's theories that in Shakespeare's time, the English spoke something closer to uh, what we know as modern American accents, general kind of American accents now. Yeah. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah. Who's to know, you know? So Viviana, I know you had some of your own questions and we're running towards the end of our time. So I'm going to send it back over to you. Well, before I do that, yeah. anybody have any questions for me they want to ask? Like anything, anything at all. You can throw anything my way. Oh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. 
Insert evil this, laugh. This is, <laughs> I was say, this is a shy group here. The, the last group, they were like, rah, 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 asking me all these oh, questions. I have, they, 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 <laughs> I have a question in the spirit of complete revelation. How do you go about uh, writing your sex scenes, your love scenes? How do you, where do you come from <laughs> wow. when it comes to that? When you get a steamy have, scene going, you've got to commit to it, you know? Right, right. Yes. That was funny. So that everybody on the other call got to hear this. So I never listen to my sex scenes. <laughs> I cannot listen to them. I am the shy, and it's not. The, so here's the really weird thing. Okay, so um, I, if there's such thing as method writing, I would say that I do that. So like when I write a character, I truly try to receive the muse, open up to the muse, and where the muse takes me. Right. Um, so a lot of times when I write sex scenes and even when I write dialogue and everything, I'm so ingrained in the character that I'm not really thinking of myself as being in the moment, right? So I write them and then I edit them and then I throw them out there and I don't think about them anymore. It's like, bye-bye, you're gone. So I mean, and, and I give them to my editor and I'm like, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me your opinion, just tell me what I need to fix and we'll move on. So it's really funny because in my previous books, I, I never thought about having to listen to them. I just, cause I, I never expected my books to be narrated, much less to be an audio, none of those things. So the first book, The Tory, when I got it, and I've got Shane East in my ears with his very deep, smoky, smoldery voice reading my sex, and I'm like, oh, like I got all red and I had to turn it off. And I like, every time I turned it on, I was like, did I write that? I wrote that. And so I had to call Jack and go, Jack, you're gonna have to take this one for the team. I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't do it. So how do I, I know, right? And then, uh, and so it's funny because you know, she's like, well, this is kind of a really steamy scene. I'm like, I know, I know, I don't want to listen to it. She's like, but you wrote it. Uh, so the truth is, is that it really comes from, so I write sex scenes to progress a story. So there's usually a lot of thought going on. It's not just like, you know, X go, you know, a, point A goes into point B and we've got, you know, some steamy sex. Mm -hmm. Like there's usually a lot of like other thoughts going on. Like they're making a decision. This is moving the character. It's progressing a moment in the story. So I have a lot of things I have to cover in a sex scene, not only the act and the experience of it, but taking the story forward within context of the book, right? So I literally like, that's usually the only thing I write. I usually rewrite them like a few times and then I put them out there, but it's, it's like, I've got to get my head in that space. And I sit down and I'm like, okay, Usually the scene starts out with all the action and then I paint it on like layers. So each time I go through an edit, I'm like, okay, I need to up the dialogue here. Okay. I need to up the, the, the storyline here. And then a lot, and a lot of times I have a song going on in the background and I build to whatever the, that song is. So if the song is building, building, oh. building, I'm actually trying to build the action with that song. So if you were to actually play the sex scene right out loud to that song, you should build the build, match the song. Wow. So a good example of this in uh, the Tory, that scene was written to by a song called So Cruel by U2. So if you were to play that song and you should read it with a tempo, it should build and follow the song. When I did the opening to Man of War, I wrote that to Spoon Man by Soundgarden. So the opening scene where he jumps down, you know, and he's fighting and goes onto the other ship and I write it to that song and it should build to the rhythm of it as I'm, as I, as I wrote it. So it, it, it's complex. There's multiple layers to how I build them. But the funny thing is when I actually like am now out of the zone and I'm no longer in the character. So like a year later when I'm hearing it narrated to me, I'm like, oh. 
<laughs> it's so cute. I want, to so I want to commend these sex scenes, by the way. I really want to commend them because I think they're very beautifully written. It was the first sex scene I've ever done. I feel the need to point that out. So I was kind of nervous. Oh, wow. So interesting, in. like, interestingly <laughs> enough, the one in the hammock, which I won't reference what's happening, but the one in the hammock, <laughs> we all know which one that one is. Um, I love the song Africa by Toto and I heard oh, that yeah. song and it was like I kept listening to it and going I see this is what I see this is what I see this is what I see my husband got really tired of that song um, it played non-stop how could you ever like, get tired of, of Africa by Toto I know oh, hear it on loop Right. And yeah. we're listening to it on loop and I'm writing the scene to this and I'm like building it and building it based on what creativity it gave me in the moment. So it's really interesting. I, I try to make them artistic when I write them, but also very like very passionate. But I'm also an extremely descriptive writer and a violent writer too. So I can't write a sex scene where the doors slam shut. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't make sense with the way that I build my stories to just have like, okay, the door slammed shut and we know India and Merrick went behind it. Like, I'm going to describe how people are going to die. I need to describe how they come together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I know I haven't gotten to the sex scene in this book yet. Uh, Danielle listened to it. She's like, oh my God, Tracy, I can't wait for you to listen. I'm like, no. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm just so, I'm just so excited to hear all of it together because the whole time I was just thinking, what's Nicholas doing? What is performance going to be in this moment? How is he reading that? In the hammock doing some research. The thing is you do for work. And here's the thing, you know, it's it's always weird when like people come back, they're like, wow, that was a really hot scene. And I'm like, oh, please don't tell me that. They are but they serve such a purpose, especially within this narrative, because the first few times that um that Merrick and India as sort of showing each other that they're interested before they even hook up. It's when they've both drunk a bit too much and it's a little bit questionable <laughs> and it's a little, but it's kind of casual and kind of fun, but nothing really happens. And then the any other sex scenes that happen later on are I, I like that you slow the pace down and you take your time with it because it's not just a sex scene because sex scenes are steamy. It's a sex scene that comes in at just the right moment for these characters to discover something within themselves. And they go through a lot of change and realizations individually in that moment. It's more than just being a bit horny. Like I really struggle with talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> but she said a brief about how it progresses the story. And, and I love that you saw that and you, you know, you know, as far as the, the listener and as a reader, as you guys are. Here's the thing. When I write them, I didn't know I was going to have narrators. So I wrote them with the idea that they were never going to be read out loud, right? Like a different thing as an author, like when you're like, somebody I don't know is now officially reading my sex. You know what I mean? It's very, very, <laughs> like I said, the first time I read, I, like I heard Sheena was like, oh my gosh, oh, I don't know this man. And he's reading that he must think, you know, but he reads lots of stuff. You guys read lots of stuff. It's not a big deal, right? You're actors. But for me, it, it's a different experience. Um, <laughs> Have, I don't know if you've got it over the States, but certainly in the UK, we have uh, a literary award called the Bad Sex Awards. And I think you've, oh. very, safely, you've very safely avoided it. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. That makes me, that makes me. And, and you know, it's interesting now that I have married. Oh, look, we have James. Uh, no. Hello, hello. <laughs> Just pop it in real quick. You say hello to Captain Merrick, sir. <laughs> it's a pleasure working with you. <laughs> the feeling's mutual, and I get the load start scrubbing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, so, right, so. At least you're not always bad as Captain Barrington, I'll give you that. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know James, uh, this is James Cheatham. He is the voice of all the, most of the, many of the sailors. He himself was a sailor too, as well, in the, U, in the U.S. Navy. So uh, happy Memorial Day, by the way. And yeah, one of our you. villains happy too, Memorial. as well. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Just had to pop in, say a quick hello. Wish you all the best. I've actually got a uh, hot, steamy hockey romance to get on board. Well, so, uh, yeah. You were just talking about hot Yeah. Thank you, James. Well then, cheers to all. Take care. Bye. The funny thing is, is that we were talking with the uh, the villains and they, they they all had like this. And it was James, I think, that came up with the concept. And in, in literally, he has a really good evil laugh. And uh, and so he was villainous and he's like, oh, you're having the heroes next weekend. Hmm, perhaps we should be bad and jump in. And I'm like, I love how you think. <laughs> <laughs> you are villainy. Yes, yes, yes. They so, Viv, it's your show. I send it back to you. All right, thanks. So, if you guys don't have any other questions for uh, TJ, um, I do have a couple of some fun, little personal, but not too personal, uh, kind of questions for you guys, if you're up for it. So, when you're not working and doing all these awesome audiobooks and theater and all this other fun stuff that you guys do for jobs, wh- when you're not working, what do you do for fun? Nicholas, you want to start? Well... Um, I have a little two-year-old by the name of Elliot who has basically got my whole diary blocked out when I'm not working Uh, and and we have a lot of fun for example this weekend uh, it was my wife's 40th birthday and we all went camping for a weekend in a field somewhere near Hastings uh, of the Battle of Hastings fame and uh, and yeah he he just um, it was his first time camping first time on the canvas and he just took it absolutely loved it so yeah he's he's my fun Aww. Remember that when he starts giving you eye rolls and attitude at teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> He's already doing it. He's already oh, giving me eye rolls. Nice. <laughs> He's so cute. Yeah. What about you, Catherine? Um, I listen to a lot of music and I watch a lot of films predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, my past work was in the film industry, so I'm I'm very cinema focused um I run a few film clubs that sort of thing it's similar to what we're doing here basically you just you sink yourself into some sort of creative film or text and then get a group of people together and just all discuss it until you're blue in the face it's wonderful that sounds like fun it's great yeah Jason yeah I uh I've been practicing guitar a lot lately uh kind of comes and goes yeah I, I play a lot of music and i actually my apartment that i've lived in for the past year and a half uh my my girlfriend and i will we live right around the corner from a movie theater so so what Catherine was saying i'm a huge uh movie fan so we've been going to saturday morning matinees every week and seeing something new so it's been a great time and then yeah just riding my bike and exercising i guess those are my hobbies and then we were talking about music and how tj rice her sex scenes to music i mean we were talking about other reasons for for the music but <laughs> <laughs> i just had to bring that sex thing back thing up again i love you tj uh but we all i think that as human beings there you know we love music whether it's because of some form of emotion that it, in, it brings up in a memory that you know comes back and you're going ooh, i remember blah 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 but there's also that one song that it does not matter if you're in the car in the shower on aisle nine of the grocery store that when it pops up you're either belting it out loud or you're doing some form of a shimmy shimmy you know dance to it 
What is that song for you? Motorhead, Ace of Spades. <laughs> that is a great song. <laughs> I, uh, I, I went uh, a few years ago, I was in, uh, on Broadway with uh, a Royal Shakespeare Company show. And at the end of the run, uh, we spent two weeks uh, in California uh, and included a little journey down the 101, down the 101 and back up uh, the Pacific Coastal Highway. And we stopped off in a little town called Watsonville and threw ourselves out of an aeroplane at 13,000 feet. And I edited the, uh, the, the skydiving movie together and it uh, just with Ace of Spades was just the only music that could, could fit it. And that has a special place cool. in my heart. Yeah. That is really cool. And Catherine, what about you? What's that song? Probably Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash. Mm. Oh, what a great song. Mm. I can't not, you know, as soon as it comes in, I can't not start singing, even though I can't sing, it's awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jason? Uh, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Oh, I love it's that one. It's not really a dance. I guess it's not really a dancing song. But I, I like that. And then maybe like Bob O'Reilly by The Who. I'll probably like shout that out. But yeah. I'm going to answer this one too. So my husband and I traveled to Iceland last year and we loved it so so much. We spent a lot of time there. But the song, the immigrant song by uh, oh, Led yeah. Zeppelin. And oh, that's yeah. actually about Iceland. Mm -hmm. And when we were there, the Icelandic people, it, it, amazing, amazing time I spent there. But they're very proud of things that are about Iceland. <laughs> and so I always loved that song and would shout it and scream it in my car you know very loud and when we got there the one of our tour guides is like you do realize that this song was written about Iceland and when they were performing in Reykjavik and so since then it's even um kind of more like dear to my heart mm -hmm. and my husband and I really fell in love with Iceland and are hoping to go back in another month uh and visit Reykjavik again so nice. yeah nice you guys work with words all day long what is your favorite word not to be confused with your favorite curse word. That's the second part of this conversation. <laughs> so your favorite word. Um, I, the one I always go back to uh, an acting teacher, uh, like freshman year of college, uh, they, uh, part of some exercise, they had us think of what our favorite word was and then use it in some context. But the word I always go back to is nightingale. I really oh, love that word. Yeah. I love that word too. I have a nightingale song as my ringtone on my mobile. Oh, nice. Ah. I, I like this song. Um, for me, I've got a bunch. I mean, I don't, I can't, I don't have a favorite word. I've got so many. I mean, everything from pressed, I can't even say it. <laughs> from pressed digitation to blubber. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine? I like serendipity. Oh, I like that word. There's something, it, it's a word that starts out quite formal and ends with something that just sounds a little bit fun and a little bit cute. And mm. it almost inspires something, something to do with serendipity within itself. Yeah. As a historic writer, I love the word clandestine. Like, I think mm. there's something, there's so much that that provides, like, you think, like, a dark room, candlelight behind a curtain. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. But I love the word clandestine. Like, I, I just, whenever, I don't use it a lot, but when I use it, I'm like, boom, there you go. Have that. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's one of those words that I always struggle with. Like, I look at it and I go, is it, is it clandestine? 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 Yeah. Thing. Everybody says it different. Well, and I have a Midwestern, you know, Michigan Canadian sort of accent. So, like, I know that when I say it, I'm killing my vowels. Like everything I say, <laughs> I'm really hard on my vowels. So, um, so if you say it, you probably saying it right. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. So now, favorite curse word. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of God damn it. The way that it <laughs> the way it starts kind of like imploded and then 
damn it kind of helps launch it forward. I, I like it a lot. <laughs> Mine's shit. All the obvious ones. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like shit. Mine is shit because usually I'm deep in shit right about now. <laughs> the self-deprecation of shit. Um, I love shit. That's my favorite I, one. <laughs> I, have, I have one. The ones that escape me, even though maybe not my favorite, one that comes out of me most often when things don't go my way. If I'm trying to, I don't know, fix something or screw something on and the screwdriver slips, it's shit the bed. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the bed. <laughs> nice, nice. It's a new one. I say fuck too much. Yeah. <laughs> it's lost its potency. I gotta be honest. It's yeah. completely, yeah, it's completely lost its potency to me as well. It's not a word that has any kind of power anymore at all. I, I've yeah. got to vote for arsed biscuits. That's a really good one too. Mm, yeah. oh, that, that's biscuits. a new one. That's, that's a new one. one. Um, or using the word ass as an adjective. Like, oh, that was yeah. ass. Like, <laughs> no, no, yeah. I've never heard it that way. I mean, yeah. either. This before. is an ass song right now. Yeah, like, I don't know. Just, just... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I love, fuck, I will go into bloody hell um, just to kind of get that, yes. you know, because like you guys were saying, fuck has kind of like you lost that potency to it it's one of those now mm. you can kind of use it as a which i love but noun verb adjective and it could be like fuck or like fuck you know if, but, yeah yeah and uh, i was i was privileged to drop the c-bomb on radio three many years ago uh, <laughs> a poem, by john, <laughs> a poem by john wilmot the earl of rochester who wrote some of the rudest 18th century poem i think it's 18th century po poetry you'll ever have heard but yeah Dropping the C bomb about three or four times on Radio Free is nice. Good, good. But it's different in it's different yeah. in Great Britain than it is over here. Yeah. Like you guys use it way more than we do. Right. <laughs> That's why I didn't true. Say I it, something DJ. else, which is which is the the American accent. I, in my this is my personal taste, but when the Americans say fuck, it's amazing. When they they can't say cunt. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can say cunt better than anyone else. I'm yeah, with an accent, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it has. It, it just it it has a different feeling about it. Yeah, yeah. But, but similar to the fuck, we, it used to be like bitch was like the really way to kind of like use that word. But now it becomes like bitch. Look at this, you know. Like oh, so <laughs> people kind of use it now. So I, I, I my I've, bitches. I've used, yeah, exactly. So I've used the c word when I'm like fucking god you know because it's one of those yeah. yeah i don't use that word and it's mm -hmm. i'm like a chicken around that word when i start to feel it coming out i'm like i think as a i think as a woman this is not a pg rated if that's even a thing anymore you know podcast no no i mean my book is far from it i know the best is like when my family members ask me like can i read one of your books like what do you think i'm like okay I just gotta tell you, yeah. <laughs> you gotta be ready for a few yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, I mean, and also depending on your upbringing and everything else. I mean, fill in the blanks of the the rationales. I mean, I didn't curse until I was in high school, and never around my mother. You know, so it's just one of those things that, yeah, it's it, you know, it could be used so poetically and so raunchy at the same time, and then people get creative, like you know, like saying something, you know, ass. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So before we go, tell us what you're, what you guys are currently working on, and what's coming up next for you that you can share. I'm currently working. I'm very, just very lucky boy. Uh, I've got a partner in a TV series over here called Endeavor, 
which is the Inspector Morse prequel series. This is the ninth Yay. season, uh, the final season. So exciting. And, uh, and I'm, I'm playing uh, a lovely chap called John Graham Scott, aka Jack, the man with four names, um, uh, who plays the viola. And uh, having a great time working with uh, Sean Evans, who plays in Devon Moore. We've been looking at all your pictures you've been posting on Facebook. We're all like, oh my God, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. Good for you. Mm -hmm. I've got some video games coming out, but they're all under NDAs, so I can't talk yeah. about anything. Oh, it's I'm so jealous. of our existence. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell uh, when I have the conversation, because I know, because I signed a bunch of NDAs as well, but I always like saying like, okay, well, I'm going to be a vampire, and then there's a cowboy, and then there's a good guy, and then a questionable guy. Oh, okay. Uh, for context, I'm going to be a villain. And then I'm going to be a villain. And then I'm going to be a villain. Mm. I see that's a pattern just here. the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're good at it. But you're so sweet, you know. I'm adorable. I'm an yes. absolute delight. And yet people seem to think they, they just want to talk to me. It, it's part of that sexy, raspy women. voice that you have, I think. She says it know? with such conviction. She's like, I'm very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jason? Uh, I have a, apart from audiobooks, I have a podcast i'm doing on friday june 3rd at uh noon eastern standard time with kaylee loring about her book good vibrations so that'll be out soon i hope yeah their turnaround time for their episodes are really quick so it's good yeah. So, yeah i uh i well from my perspective the rubble is about to come out in physical book this fall and then next spring will be the turncoats audio so more to come there, as well as The Raider, the second book in the Alexi series, and then part of the saga. And then the, the Rebel Audio will be coming out probably by December of next year. So I've got two more audiobooks coming out and two more physical books coming out. So, yay! Yeah. I, I love me. goodies. I love oral goodies. So thank you, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yes. Well, thank you, Nicholas, Catherine, and TJ, and Jason, as well as the villains that popped in for some of the fun for this year's audiobook loving series. Everyone, thank you for hanging out with us today. And we hope you've enjoyed this interview and chat as well as the series. Make sure to follow on social media. We'll get everybody's link so you guys don't have to go hunting. And that will be in the main landing page of the audiobook loving series over at Viviana and Chapters of Books. And until next time, happy listening. Thank you for joining us in the Audiobook Lovin' series, hosted by Viviana, Enchantress of Books. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, as well as the series. We've included audio samples of our guests' work within the post for you to check out. Please make sure to visit the main page, link within the post, to learn more about the series, the authors, and the narrators. Please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to the series if you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow us on our social media platforms, and subscribe to the Viviana Enchantress of Books newsletter. Until next time, happy listening. Audiobook Lovin' hopes you've enjoyed this program 